Welcome to the TEH, the Tech Enthusiast Hour podcast, where several hosts talk about what they find interesting in tech this week. The show notes for this episode are at tehpodcast.com slash teh67. This week, we again have all four regular hosts. I'm Randy Cassingham, founder of thisistrue.com, the oldest entertainment feature on the internet, and the Get Out of Hell free card, a fun online, offline, viral gimmick. I'm Kevin Savitz, the creator of freeprintable.net and faxzero.com, sites that let you do useful things online for free. I'm Leo Notenboom, the Leo behind askleo.com, where I help people with their technical questions and using computers and technology more effectively. And apparently sometimes all I need to be is in the room or on the connection because just before (laughs) we started, a problem went away. And I didn't have to do a thing. It was magic. Yeah, tech magic. I'm Gary Rosenzweig, the host and producer at MacMost.com. Get the most from your Mac. And I also do WordPress stuff and make mobile games. Clevermedia.com is my home domain for all that. Here's so what do, we, what do we do this week? Well, Kevin, you sound like you have a lot of really interesting he stuff. Always does. He always a lot does. Of I know. Interesting stuff. When I stumbled yes. on this, something like this earlier um, this week, I thought this is one for Kevin. <laughs> so, so the first part of this is is so geeky that normally I would not mention it here, but then it it gets it gets so I have to talk about it. Um, so a few days ago, the complete Infocom game source code was released uh, on GitHub. Now, Infocom uh, was a company that pioneered the the text adventure game, and uh, the kind of game where you know you could type "look at tree" and it would give you the description of the tree in English or you know, sometimes other languages. And uh, uh, so, this was something that they they pioneered in the late seventies and early. Is that Zork? Yeah, Zork was okay. was Infocom. Yeah, and. Uh, uh, so all the source code was found and uploaded to GitHub. And it is written in a language called ZIL, um, which is Zork Implementation Language, which, <laughs> um, which is a language that nobody knows how to use anymore except for a couple of, you know, cr- a, few, a handful of crazy enthusiasts. Uh, ZIL was based on some other language that you really haven't heard of, which was based on uh, dialect of Lisp. So uh, all the source code was uploaded, and, and people were looking at it, especially people who like text adventure games and that sort of thing. And then GitHub was into it, and they added a new... Um, uh, dialect to their their parser when, when code's up on github they uh they can do things like you put keywords in different colors and they have different they understand what language they're looking at um so someone at github uh made it understand the zil zork implementation language uh so that it's all pretty color-coded and and uh everything and so github was really into this and and uh they decided that they wanted to have a an event uh, around this, that kind of celebrating the fact that this source code is available for people to learn from, and that it's all up on GitHub. Um, and <coughs> excuse me, I'm sorry. Um, uh, so the event is going to be this Friday. Uh, their first choice for host wasn't available, and that <laughs> person said that I should do it. So oh, no, uh, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> so um, I'll take it. So on Friday, I am going down to the uh, GitHub World Headquarters in San Francisco, and I will be uh, interviewing uh, Steve Moretzky, who is one of the founders of Infocom and one of their finest game creators. Uh, and we're going to be up on stage live um, talking about uh, writing games in a strange language and how he did uh, version control back in the 70s and 80s before things like GitHub existed. Um, and That's really uh, so kind of cool. Yeah. Super cool. It's going to be it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, and he took meticulous notes back in the day, which have all been scanned. So I'm going to be able to kind of refer to, to uh, his notes from the time. We might look at some code. I'm not sure what's going to happen, but it's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be live on stage at the GitHub World Headquarters. And uh, the public is invited. Um, if you can't go, also? And it, uh, yes, and if you can't go, it will be streamed as well. And so uh, everybody can can watch me uh, interview Steve Moretzky. And if you are there, after the, the event, um, there is supposed to be a, a, a cocktail party and there's going to be a, a bunch of computers around with uh, games to play, both modern and old Infocom games. Very awesome. cool. Wow. Yeah. My first introduction to Infocom was they actually <clears throat> republished um, Colossal Cave Adventure, which mm -hmm. is like the, the granddaddy of these text kind of yeah. um, uh, adventure games. And uh, I, of course, had to get that for, at that point, my, uh, my Apple II. But I'd actually been introduced to the game prior to that because it was, had been implemented on the CDC mainframe at school. Um, so we were playing that back then. My understanding is that that one at least was written in Fortran uh, back in the day. Hmm. Uh, but of course, it precedes, uh, you know, it predates Zork and that family. So well, I mean, the 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 Zork implement or yeah, Zork implementation language is on top, built on top of something else, right? That's just the code for how the games work, but. The underlying right, right. somewhere there's an interpreter or or parser, yeah. some kind of thing. I mean, Who it could have been, that's and it could have been different things over the. I mean, it could have been Fortran or something like that at the beginning, and they eventually rewrote it. Maybe sure. any time. Matter well, of fact, there's maybe, still implementations of it. You can get it on apps. Yes. Yeah. Um, there. So the neat thing about the the ZIL language is it was it basically ran in a virtual machine and right. the same code. Yeah. You know, say you're playing Zork. Uh, the same code would run on every computer, which might be literally from a, 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 a PDP mainframe down to an Apple II, down to a, a, a Macintosh today, can run that same code. The, the only difference is the, the virtual machine interpreter, uh, which certainly could be written in any language. Back in those days, uh, the Infocom days, it was written in, in uh, assembly language typically. Um, mm. But you know now it's they you can write them you can play uh, Zoom on your Mac is a great interpreter and it's it you know I suppose it's probably written in Xcode or something like that so it was a it was a fascinating and very smart way to do that because they could create a product and release it for twenty different computers yeah because they didn't have to worry about speed that much it was just <clears> displaying <throat> text on the screen yeah um, that was its only requirement really was just to display text within a reasonable amount of time. Uh, based on where you are in the game and what you did. You're in a maze of twisty passages all alike. Mm -hmm. What? So you're going to be spending all week, I guess, Kevin, looking through those notes, coming up with good questions. 
just mm-hmm. uh, immersed in the, the whole thing, which is I'm jealous of. That sounds like a great way to spend a week. Yeah, it's gonna be a, it's gonna be a lot of fun, kind of reviewing. Like, and I've been, I you know, me and my my buddy Carrington have a podcast called Eaten by a Crew, where we're playing all the games, and we've played probably three quarters of them now. Um, so I have opinions from a player's perspective, but you know, haven't spent any time looking at the code um, because it wasn't available until you know three or four days ago. So. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting kind of looking at it all from the other side of the coin. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so that's it. I get to talk to Steve Moretzky and I get to fly down. I get to be like a super cool jet setter and fly down to San Francisco for a day, not even spending the night, just going down, doing the thing, coming back. So. <laughs> yeah, cool. Yeah. That's my news. Hmm. Who's next? We have no more time, so. Thanks. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um. Well, so I I only bring this up because we talked about it a couple of times in the past uh, about Amazon going into retail and doing different weird things in retail. So um, I I actually, this morning, decided I was going to return an item on Amazon, which I've done before, which we all have. And when I got to the screen that should have had information about how to ship it back to them, it offered me an option to take it to Amazon Books a short distance from my home. And I was like, what? Uh, okay, what's that? And I remembered, of course, that they had talked about opening a bookstore here in Denver. And uh, I just didn't know they actually did it. And it actually was open. Um, so I checked off, yes, I would like to go to Amazon Books to return this. Um, and it is was walking distance from my house at a big shopping center here in Denver. It's in the outdoor part of the shopping center. Um, it, uh, it, it's was pretty nice. It was bigger than I thought. You know, those little stores that Amazon opened up that had like their top, you know, their five-star products or whatever. Um, It's not like that. It's, you know, a bookstore, I'd say maybe about the size of one of the, you know, in the day those Walden books, you know, not like a huge multi-level thing, but, you know, it it was basically the size of like two retail footprints um, with different book sections. And they had lots of other, uh, Products for sale, I'd say it was two-thirds books, maybe 75% books. And, but then they had, you know, Echoes and Kindles and iPhone cases and, you know, some gadgets and little things, just like a smattering of some of the most popular Amazon products, probably also geared towards, like, what you might actually need, like, right now, like little cables and things like that, headphones. Um, their return desk was huge. I, I thought, well, this... They just must have just opened, and the boy, the store had it still had that new store smell. Um, <laughs> and it, you know, I thought, well, this has got to be unusual. But when I got there, by far the most people in the store were people in line waiting uh, at the returns desk. Um, oh no! <laughs> because well, because I I realized what happened. Of course, I got this message when I tried to return something. I'm sure everybody else in this area, as you know, as when they went to return something, got this little offer to hey, bring it to the store. Um, so of course people said, sure, I'd rather do that. Uh, it, it, strangely enough, the store is exactly one block closer to my house than the post office. Like the post office is the next <laughs> block over. So if I had said no and decided to take the, the uh, box to the post office, I would have had to walk past the, the Amazon books store and then go to the post office. So the neat thing about the return was I didn't have to do anything. The, they gave me a code that I got when I, said that it was like a, a, a little uh, QR code on the, my iPhone screen. And 
I didn't have to put it in a box. I didn't have to attach a receipt. I didn't have to do anything. I just brought the product in my hand, handed it to them, showed them my QR code. That was it. They just put it in a bag to thank you. And an email arrived on my phone instantly saying, your return has been you know, received at this location. So that saved me a lot of time. Why was the line so long? Just because there were a bunch of people's lunchtime and there were a bunch of people that got that information saying, hey, do this instead of packaging it up. So of course, you know, it's an easier option. While you're there, you may as well shop around a little. Oh yeah, so then that's what I did. I I was going to ask how much money did you spend? I didn't spend anything. But I did want to get a good idea of what was around there and I tried to resist the temptation of books. I'm one of those people that can't see pretty books on the tables and on the shelves and be like, ooh, what's this? And end up walking out with, you know, three or four. But I resisted that temptation. It was a nice, nice uh, store. And what occurred to me is like, that whole area, which is just hundreds of stores in this area, indoor and outdoor, it's probably one of the most interesting stores there because every other store was very vertical. It was like a store that just sells art prints, a store that just sells like shoes, a store that, you know, very vertical stuff there. And this was a store that sold gadgets and books and neat little things. And it was so it was like, oh, I could, this is a store that, yeah, I could actually browse in and probably find things that I, I actually would want to buy as opposed to the other stores, which I almost never go into in this neighborhood. Yeah, it's, it's actually pretty interesting or brilliant, I'll even say, marketing on Amazon's part because even though you didn't buy anything on the way out, yeah, they've, you know, they figured out a way to make li- your life easier by bringing you into their store, right? Yeah. Now, now um, here, here's the opportunity to give them some more money. Now, here's... Uh, the weird thing about that store and you know, anybody from Denver knows the name tattered cover. That's our, that's the Denver local bookstore. You know, Powell's city of books is the equivalent in Portland, for instance. I think there's one in Seattle too. That's like the, not anymore, not anymore. Used to oh, see, well, so tattered cover is still around. It was several locations and there are a few left, but years ago, the big flagship store, the one that would have rivaled Powell's in Portland uh, was this three-story or almost four, to include the basement, huge location uh, with a restaurant on the top and everything that you could just get lost in for hours. Um, and it was in this area, just a couple blocks from here. And uh, that store closed years ago, probably partially due to you know Amazon. Um, it, it actually, that's technically the store moved, but the location it opened up in is maybe a quarter of the size of that one so um but yeah it felt weird to be like oh there used to be a bookstore right down the block here that everybody used to go to and they closed because of amazon and now amazon has a bookstore right here so like yeah comes around i guess well here's what's coming around the whole point of online shopping was that you didn't have to put on pants and leave the house and now you're all excited that you got to leave the house to return a thing kevin kevin you just made a, a big assumption pants Exactly. <laughs> yeah, who said I was wearing any pants? I mean, oh, come on. No. <laughs> um, no, I well, the thing is I'm not that excited about shopping there. I don't see I, I don't know. I suppose if the only thing I I thought is looking on the shelves, I I thought, well, you know what? If I got a little thing when I went to Amazon site and wanted to buy something, if it popped up a little thing saying, Hey, there's three of them at the store near your house, I could see 
saying, oh, okay, uh, never mind. I'll just walk over and get it uh, just to get it quicker and to have a nice walk because it's, it's walking distance. But I think one of the, the bigger um, draws also for these stores is giving you hands-on with something uh, like a Kindle, for example. Mm-hmm. You, know, you may not know if it's the right one for you or if, you, if a Kindle is even the right thing for you or any of the other um, Amazon Echo devices. This at least gives you an opportunity to see them, touch them, feel them, play with them. Um, even if all you do is go back home and order it online, uh, you know, the, the, they've, the, the store has added value to the company. Yep. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I, and I, I definitely wouldn't say I'm excited as in, oh, it's about time. I can't wait to do all my shopping here. I'm just excited as you know, this is just some new development in this, in kind of the tech online retail space. And yep. I, I want to see how it plays out. Yep. I'm curious to see, are there going to be a thousand Amazon books stores around the country or is this, or three years from now, they're going to be zero. You know, what I find the- interesting is that Amazon is moving towards Walmart and Walmart is moving towards Amazon in the sense that Amazon's this big online presence and now they're doing these offline things. Walmart has been doing exactly the opposite where they're this huge offline presence and they're also moving online along with other stores like, you know, Target and others. <coughs> yeah, sorry. It does appear to be headed towards the inevitable Walmart, Amazon, like bipolarity kind mm-hmm. of thing in the retail space. But the net result is kind of a hybrid, right, of, of both, mm-hmm. um, both uh, platforms, if you will, the physical platform and the online. Yeah. Well, speaking of Amazon... Uh, they just kissed and made up with Google, which I thought was really, really interesting for a number of different reasons. Um, backstory on that is that uh, for, gosh, I think a couple of years now, you could not buy a, uh, a Google Chromecast device on Amazon and um, you uh, could not play uh, the YouTube app on the Amazon Fire or other Amazon streaming devices. Uh, basically, Amazon said, "No, we're not going to sell our competitive product in the store." And the you know the the competitor Google in this case said, "Well, fine, we're just not going to let people watch our stuff on your on your devices." Well, they finally kissed and made up, and apparently, you can do that now. You can um, run the YouTube app on your Amazon Fire TV stick, and you can now uh, or will soon be able to purchase. Google Chrome devices. You can now. I just looked it up. Did you? Yep. I knew it was coming soon. It probably, you know, just happened in the past couple of days. What, um, you know, in a very real practical sense, this feud has actually kind of sort of hurt them both. Um, It's one of the reasons that I have a Roku is because it can do both of the things I cared about, which these guys were mutually exclusive on. I think it was something we talked about here, like maybe last year sometime. Um, you know, both of you, a uh, couple of you guys said, um, oh, go get yourself a Roku. It'll do both of the things you want. Um, but now, uh, you know, the, uh, the Amazon stick will do it and the, and the Chrome, uh, Chromecast device will do it. My, I was wondering about this because the timing on this was really, really coincidental with uh, something else that's happening in the streaming market, the market where that these devices are playing in. And that is that um, all of the other streaming uh, entities are making some big moves. Uh, The big one that announced, I think it was just last week, was the fact that Disney Plus finally committed to a date um, and even a pricing scheme that is apparently less than Netflix 
Uh, and, you know, they've got a, they've been preparing for some time to, I think, move a lot of the content off of Netflix and onto Disney, uh, you know, the Disney content that, uh, so they'll have perhaps exclusive streaming or at least preferential streaming on the Disney Plus network or streaming uh, service when it comes online late this year. And at the same time, uh, there was also a, a note that, AT&T, who actually owns uh, DirecTV, among other things, is uh, sold their stake. I'm sorry. Um, I have to go back and look at this again. One of the major players in Hulu sold their stake in Hulu, leaving only uh, two of the um, – uh, yeah, AT&T sold its stake. So Disney has overwhelming control of Hulu. So I'm wondering, and maybe you guys have an opinion on this, but I'm wondering if all of a sudden Google and Amazon deciding to play nice with each other is in part at least a reaction not only to these two big moves, but to the general growth and and tectonic shifts that are happening in the streaming market. Hmm. Yeah, no, I I think so. And I think, strangely enough, uh, I mean, it is Disney Plus, that has shaken things up quite a bit. Um, I mean, everybody thought Apple would be shaking things up, and but everybody was expecting Apple's announcement. And everybody's expecting Disney's announcement, but I don't think anybody was really prepared for it to be their service to be so big and to be so cheap, like cheap enough that everybody's just going to get it. Right. <laughs> you know? um, and then their lineup, I mean, I looked at their lineup, and of course, the Disney does nothing but produce tons and tons of content all the time. So they don't have to even scale up to introduce one of these services. They're probably the only company, you know, not since they own, you know, Marvel and 20th Century Fox, you know, the movie production or TV production part of it. Uh, they own all these other brands uh, out there, you know, Pixar's and the you know, Miramax and all this stuff. They have so much going on and so many comp- content production companies under their you know well, corporate umbrella. they've got the huge uh sports footprint in uh, espn espn yeah yep. and so it's so much that they've got that they didn't yeah they didn't have they're the only company that didn't have to ramp up at all they could just say we're doing disney plus and here's that ton of content we're going to dump onto it like I'm, I'm not even talking about the old stuff i'm talking about the new stuff too right. you know so many new shows but of course disney could easily create so many new shows for Apple. It's a big deal to create, you know, 10 new shows. Oh, it's a huge deal to go from zero to 10, but for Disney to, you know, throw 20 or 30 new shows together to be on the service for its launch is nothing. They, they're going to do that anyway. It's going to be on the you know Disney cable networks. It's going to be, you know, in theaters direct, they've been doing direct, uh, you know, they were doing direct to VHS movies right way back before anybody else was doing it. You know, there were like sequels to their popular films and, and cartoons and stuff that they would just go direct to the video stores in the eighties and nineties. And anyway, it's just, they're going to be huge and it's what is it? Six ninety nine or whatever a month. Right. I mean, <clears throat> I was like not, that. I was like, well, you know, uh, maybe, I don't know. Well, six ninety nine. Well, I might as well. Sure. <laughs> you know, oh, there's going to yeah. be a, Weird Jeff Goldblum show where he talks about strange well, stuff. It, okay. No, you don't even have to go to to those kind of t- topics. I mean, the fact that they picked up Marvel yeah. and the success of the Marvel universe and all the rumored follow-ons and so forth, and Star Wars. 
there's a Star Wars. Yeah, a bunch of Star Wars like shows, like TV shows. Right, they're going to be on. Um, Yeah, yeah, I think one of the early signs that this kind of thing was happening was when Netflix started canceling the Marvel-based series uh, on their production, and the Mm -hmm. hope and now the expectation is that some of these things like Jessica Jones and Iron Fist and um, gosh, a couple of others uh, that they get picked up as part of Disney picking up all of Marvel. Well, they announced two, uh, two series. One is um, uh, it's going to be a Hawkeye one, I think. And then there's going to be one with those two, you know, uh, two characters, uh, Elizabeth Olsen's character and the other guy, you know, that, that, uh, they were in the oh, Avengers vision movies. and vision. Uh, yeah. And what's her name? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, they, they already announced those are going to be new shows. So they don't even have to bring back those ones. I mean, there's so much content they can create and they could do it so easily without relying on anybody else. Just, uh, so yeah, everybody is uh, like what you said, they are, I think our, uh, things are really getting stirred up now. Um, I, I mean, can like CBS, they're, their network, I mean, they offer so little compared to what Disney is going to be offering. Right. They're hanging, they their, they're hanging their hats on a few exclusives. Yeah. Um, you know, we have uh, CBS's uh, all, all access, access specifically because of Star Trek Discovery. Yeah. And now but, they're adding some more Star Trek content, which is great. Um, that's fine. Um, and, you know, watching other CBS content is convenient, but not... Uh, the kind of stuff that would you know, cause me to shell out the money every month. Whereas of course the Star Trek stuff absolutely does. And because it's exclusive. So they've got a chance. Like I said, I think I said last week or the week before, uh, as soon as game of throne ends, we are going to have to do the math because right now we've got um, direct TV and we've got a lot of stuff duplicated with the streaming services we do have. And there's a very good chance that the math will not work out in DirecTV's favor after, after a certain point in time. Hmm. I have another little angle on the, the Disney thing. My, my kid has a Disney video app on her iPad, and she uses it to watch all the thousands of Disney shows that they manage to churn out every week. <laughs> um, and she logged into it today. And she's like, Dad, something's wrong. The uh, my shows are gone. And it's like, and she picked up, pulled up one particular show she likes. And she's like, normally every episode from every in the last eight seasons is here. Uh, now it's just showing the three most recent episodes where they all go. And then, you know, I made sure she was still locked in and everything, and everything was fine. And my theory is uh, they're taking content away from that free platform so that they're going to move everything to the paid you know, five ninety nine a month or whatever it is uh, platform. And I told her that I'm like, I, I think they, they want us to pay now. They're doing the thing. They're going to put everything on, on their, a new you know, Disney channel. And she was just like, yay, great. And you know, she's assumed that we've, she already assumed that we're going to subscribe to this thing. <laughs> Which really was the last thing on my uh, agenda ever. Um, but uh, she's excited by it. So, so all that stuff used to be free for her. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. And these are like the little, the weird little sitcom-y shows for 
you know, for teens and tweens that, that they run on Disney channel right. constantly, that sort of stuff. There's a, there's a ton of them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Dog think, with a blog. I mean, it's a real high, yeah. high quality stuff. Yeah. <laughs> no, there, it, it's amazing. I did see a little, it was like an article I read or somebody was talking on TV. Uh, it was about these shows that they see when you describe them, they almost seem fake. Like, mm-hmm. Oh, that's not a real show. Yes, it is. It's in its fourth <laughs> season. Like What? <laughs> You know, but Disney and they turn it out, and and kids kids watch it. And the, the interesting thing that Disney's got going on is like other networks, like we're talking about, like CBS and and stuff. They create shows for adults, and adults are more or less from the age or maybe somewhere your mid to late twenties till you're old, more or less the same, right? And what we want, you know, I'm big. It's a big age demographic. But kids, if you're six, you're watching different stuff than when you're eight, than when you're 10, than when you're 12, and then when you're 14. It's like all these different shows. You know, you grow out of this one level of show and you grow into another one, you know, and, and then sometimes they circle back because, you know, a five-year-old will watch SpongeBob and a 15-year-old will watch SpongeBob. But, uh, and then sometimes a 49-year-old will watch SpongeBob. And nobody in particular, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, so it, Disney has a weird, uh, weird area there with their kids programming. It's, it's so, um, it's, it's like called strata of hooking them young. Yeah. Well, it's, it's just an interesting, you know, when you graduate from one show to the next, you know, after you're done watching this show, then you move on and now there's a show for you at your age that, you know, and they have to, and they have to have new fresh shows, all the time so the next group of kids that reach around 12 years old have mm-hmm. something at disney that they can watch that's new that's not an old show where people are carrying around flip phones and they have they've never heard of snapchat you know they have to keep refreshing it and the thing you can use, reuse the same 10 plots over and over again and yeah. it's fine it's still funny or, or you know it yeah you know it's not probably not exactly a lot of writing work right yeah it's yeah they just I don't know, created around the character, I mean, but that's the way you, yeah. literature is too. You know, you have sure, certain arch- archetypes of characters and uh, the, the twelve different plots or whatever, and you right. and you put it together in new and interesting ways. And yeah, yeah. yeah. So don't try to freeze the writers out, Kevin. No, yeah. no, I love the writers. <laughs> and but and there's only there's only two different plots, Gary. It's it's uh, a man goes on a journey, and a stranger comes to town. <laughs> that's it's the only two and which one is boy meets girl boy loses girl <laughs> so which one is ghostbusters <laughs> well those are strangers coming to town that strangers come to town is that yeah. what it is i guess absolutely yes you're right no i just know there's that thing where ghostbusters is the only movie ever made where the the hero doesn't grow you ever mm. hear that it's like the only every uh, other I've, I've heard about that about uh uh, Marty McFly in uh, uh, Back to the Future. Really? You don't know, but he learned something, right? Does Especially he? Back to the Future 3, right? Because this whole thing about him being chicken. Okay, well, I'm talking about Back to the Future the, one. the original one. The original. Yeah. It's not exactly a deep character arc. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great movie. I mean, it's it's one of the best, but, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it, it somehow managed to get a story about time travel that was somewhat more coherent than sometimes very serious movies about time travel. Sure. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anyway. Hey, hey Leo, Leo, did you get anything in the mail this week? 
Oh, thank you for reminding me. Gosh, <laughs> I almost forgot to talk about that. So last week we were talking about, um, I forget the, con- the, the global context. I think we were all talking about favorite movies or movies that moved us or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mentioned that 2001, A Space Odyssey, was a movie that meant a, a tremendous amount to me. And uh, I also mentioned in passing that I had at least, uh, I think, three or four different copies in three different formats, uh, one format of which I couldn't read, I, I couldn't use yet because it was the uh, uh, 4K version, and I don't yet have a 4K uh, compatible device. Lo and behold, I get this random package in the mail from someone I've never heard of sealed with some eBay tape that is about the size and the shape of, and sure enough, is the Laserdisc version of 2001 A Space Odyssey. Um, The way I characterized it is it's an awesome, awesome gift that is completely useless to me (laughs) because I don't have a Laserdisc player and I have no plans to get one. Um, Somebody, and I don't remember exactly where it was, I'm pretty sure it was on one of my Facebook posts where I talked about it, mentioned that I should actually take one of the discs out and then frame it next to the, uh, you know, uh-huh. next to the package, next to the actual uh, sleeve, uh, have that hanging on the wall or something. But uh, it turns out, uh, I had no idea who it came from, none whatsoever, until somebody fessed up. So thank you, Kevin. Well, you're, you're welcome. You, you were, you said you were going to contact the the you, maybe you assumed it was from a listener or something and you were going to contact the ebay seller to right figure out and i just didn't want you to waste your time or, or theirs so i i fessed up i, I like the idea of being anonymous but not when it was creating extra work for everybody so. <laughs> well like i said i appreciate it, it was very it was a certainly uh, one of the more unique gifts i've gotten over the years. <laughs> and, and, and if you had a laser disc player you'd be able to now watch 2001 in glorious 720 by no it's worse than that i actually i had to do the research because i wasn't sure what the uh uh, what the the resolution was Um, it's better than standard definition but it's Mm. not uh, 720 it's more like 586 i think that's right 586 across by no 586 high i think oh okay i was saying it was 720 by 480 um oh okay yeah 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 so yeah, that's it's a little bit better, but yeah, it's nowhere near as good as 720, which of course nobody has now. Everybody's got 1080, 1080. but actually nobody has that now because everybody's everybody's going 4K. 4K exactly. So. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's still an awesome movie, uh, no matter what resolution you see it in. Uh, the thing that I found, I mean, I, I knew of course that laser discs existed and that there were there were some people that were really passionate about it, but of course this forced me to do just a little bit more research into the uh, into the technology. Uh, what I did not realize, uh, I did realize that it was an analog recording on the Laserdisc. But what I didn't realize is that it was uh, time constant. Uh, each side of the Laserdisc holds one half of an hour, which means that the movie comes on two discs. And you have to physically flip the disc over uh, after half, every half hour or insert the, the next disc, as the case may be. So that was that was entertaining to think about so there there are a couple of different versions of laserdisc uh uh data formats and one of them as you said is is half hour per disc and the other one the extended play version is an hour per disc uh the hour per disc the, the half hour one works out really nicely because it's one frame per track which makes it real convenient so you can do 
uh, still. You can do this, the still pause and, and freeze frame. Uh, and also slow motion and things like that. Uh, on the extended play discs, um, it's four frames a track. Uh, is that right? No, two. Any, it actually, I think it's actually depending on the width of the track because um, the auto tracks are bigger. Anyway, the extended play have more data on each track and so you cannot do uh, features like, like a freeze frame. And the, the kind of the neat thing about a movie like 2001 being in, in that correct format is that you can st- st- you know do freeze frames on the on the cool scenes and, and slow oh, motion and all that stuff. Yep. Some of the discs that came out later, uh, in order to save money, uh, most of the discs, most of the sides would be on uh, the extended play. But like the the the, the good scenes, the the you know the action sequences, maybe the the final denouement or whatever would would be on a. Uh, the disc with uh we could do the the special effect stills and things like that fun stuff yeah so something else for my collection and yes that one uh, i don't expect to ever be able to watch it but uh, i'm definitely hanging on to it adding it to the collection good should i send you a version on beta no <laughs> oh, okay <laughs> jad do you have a uh, actual 70 millimeter film you know <laughs> Those are $25,000, I've heard. I heard that cost a little bit much. I mean, unless, you know, somebody wants to anonymously send me a copy, that'd be great. (laughs) Or at least the Super 8 version. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Do you have have a VHS version, though? You know, I think I did, actually. You did? Uh, Oh, you don't have that anymore. I'll have to... I'm not sure. I've got a handful of old VHS tapes, and I'm not sure if the that's one of them or not. Let's have to look. Yep. Hmm. Cool. So moving on. Yes. <laughs> Speaking um, of space, there you go. Uh, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, SpaceX was doing a ground test of the Crew Dragon spacecraft on Saturday, and they had an anomaly. Um, that's NASA speak for something went wrong. And people saw a big burst of orange cloud, which is not actually unusual. It just has to do with the kind of fuel they're using. But apparently something blew up or uh, otherwise failed. And uh, Ars Technica has a, a nice little article about, you know, what we know and what we don't know about the incident, which hasn't really been talked about much yet. And the thing I found really interesting about it was that they say, based on an unauthorized leaked video of the accident, the count the company was counting down. Uh, and when you click on the leaked video link, that link disappeared. So it's it was something that Astronaut099 put on Twitter. And Astronaut099 is, according to his Twitter bio, a mad rocket science scientist at Kennedy Space Center. So if he actually got some video and posted it there, it sounds like he got his hand slapped and uh, took it back down again. Uh, It's unclear whether he took it or somebody else took it or where he got it, whatever. But he does still have a picture that somebody took from the beach across the causeway of the orange smoke puffing up. So, um, what happened? Don't know. Hmm. How's this going to impact the crew program on the Crew Dragon? Don't know. It was the same actual spacecraft that did go to the uh, 
space station recently and took up cargo and a mannequin. But um, what are they going to do to get the tests done that they need to do before they put humans in? Don't know. And I like that Ars Technica basically says that. Don't know. We don't know. We don't know. I, I could speculate. I mean, yeah. this, this has happened to me before. The one handles diesel. The other is unleaded. And, and <laughs> I don't you hate that. Yeah, and you get, and you know, it's just, ah, you're not paying attention. The next thing you know, you have puffs of smoke coming out. Yeah, of and they put hydrazine in the diesel tank. Yeah. Well, here's what I know from watching Star Trek. You have something called an, <laughs> an anomaly, and it's a, it's a giant orange cloud. It's bad. <laughs> I, I think are going to be going back in time. There's there's going to be some sort of looping situation. Um, uh, aliens come out of it. It's not good. Well, I, I think it's a Klingon plot. <laughs> but it's a fun little article. It's interesting. And I like that they admit they don't know a lot of these things. But they, they do analyze what they do know and, and give some opinions and analysis, which is actually pretty on target. So I'll uh, link to that in the show page. Now, wasn't the test that they were performing, wasn't it the, uh, you know, escape test, you know, something Apparently. goes wrong during launch and then, then rockets fire to pull the astronauts away from the... Uh, and this is a really neat escape system. Uh, even if you light the booster and it is going up into the sky, the little rockets on the capsule itself actually have enough oomph to push them away from that. And that would be one hell of a ride, but the number know, of G's that they are uh, um, that they would experience in something like that supposedly would be enough to uh, to injure them all by itself, probably, right? but, or at least at least knock them unconscious. Right, it wouldn't kill them, but the, but they'd be hurting afterwards. They'd be alive, yeah. but they'd be hurting. It's interesting because when I f- first heard that this happened, I had a flashback um, to Apollo One. Yeah, uh, which was um, for the youngsters out there was the, uh, um, uh, they were testing uh, some aspect of one of the, the Apollo uh, capsules that was you know, going to be one of the ones you know, heading us off to the moon eventually. And it caught on fire and three astronauts inside died. Um, this is similar only in the sense that, you know, it was, it's a capsule that apparently you know, caught on fire, exploded, whatever. Uh, fortunately, Thank God there was nobody inside. Um, you know, nobody yeah, was hurt. And it was similar also in that it was a ground test. It yes. wasn't manned this time. Right. Yeah. The Apollo 1 um, uh, disaster was also a ground test. They were not, you know, planning on launching. It was something that they were, you know, something they were testing uh, before the eventual launch of the, of the device. So, yeah, I just, like I said, for, for those of us who were around for that, um, this just felt a little too freakily similar. Yep. And they, they, uh, uh, ours actually talks about that and how it's kind of an eerie parallel. So cool. they yep. brought it up too. Can I tangent a little bit from SpaceX sure. to, to Tesla? It's, the, it's all the same company. It's all the same guy, right? Sure, why not? <laughs> um, there, there was something today about, about a, an event about self Tesla announcing self-driving or talking about autonomous cars more and it was well they were going to demonstrate i actually haven't looked to see if if there is a uh, happened today or not there is a three apparently um because we were talking about youtube before the show began as i was poking around on youtube apparently there is a three-hour video um that tesla posted 
And I don't know if it's like three hours of the car driving itself somewhere or what, but um, something happened. That's for sure. Hmm. The only thing I I know for sure is I saw on on Slashdot, of all places, um, the the headline is Tesla will allow aggressive autopilot mode with slight chance of a fender bender. So you can choose to maybe get an accident. So anyway, I I missed the event and I was wondering if any of you guys saw it. Hey, uh, that's the decision millions of people make right now. That's true. Without uh, the... Without the artificial intelligence, they just choose to drive aggressively with the slight chance of fender bending. Well, and even the old autopilot, you know, which is not the same as their full self-driving, mm-hmm. their statistics show that it's much safer to have the car drive, even that low-tech mm-hmm. version, than humans driving. Right. And you know, it's, it's a more controlled environment because those really only work on highways, essentially. But um, the car is much more likely to keep an eye out and actually do something when they <laughs> see something happen in front of them, like slam on the brakes. Well, another way to keep an eye out uh, is using uh, surveillance cameras. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. Uh, which, which means I'm up again. Uh, I just spotted this in how to geek, um, which I think is kind of neat. Um, they actually have a little tutorial on how to detect hidden surveillance cameras. And part of it um, is in response to some headlines a few weeks ago about um, some people at an Airbnb discovering a, uh, a streaming camera in, their, in the living room of the place that they had uh, rented. And that wasn't disclosed, yada, yada, yada. So, you know, the people actually left and, you know, uh, Apparently, Airbnb didn't do much about it until they went to the press, and then they uh, made it clear that this is a no-no. It's it's in their terms of service that you cannot have cameras in any sleeping area, including if you have a height of bed in the in the living room. I don't know if that was the case in, in this one, and I think they have to disclose that they are there in the first place. Well, this is the little tutorial that using just your phone and maybe a couple of apps how to scan a a space around you to see whether there's some hidden cameras in there. And I'm really in favor of scanning your own house. You know, is there something in there that, that you didn't know about? Um, And certainly, you know, if you're uh, in a shady hotel or maybe a a Airbnb or something and you want that security of knowing it looks like there's nothing here. But, you know, obviously all these things are uh, not necessarily definitive, but I thought it was kind of neat that they had that uh, that article in there. Uh, you know, I was just trying to think of the sheer number of cameras that I know about in yeah. my house. I mean, when I was a kid, it would be possible to go over somebody's house and the number of cameras in the house would be zero. And probably more likely it was one or two of a film still camera camera, and then maybe going into the 80s you would know a couple people that had camcorders uh early camcorders now i'm thinking of all the phones that my family has that that have multiple cameras on them the ipads the laptops the imacs the uh the ring doorbells the security cams the nanny cams yes they uh just so many devices and then if i try to think of number of microphones too uh, gee, oh, wow! The echoes the um, 
Google Homes, yes, they're they're everywhere. I guess, and then then also add the number of screens, and it's just weird, you know. If you just use those raw numbers, and you told somebody, uh, or you told, or you told George Orwell <laughs> decades ago <laughs> that there would be this many screens, microphones, and cameras in everybody's household, he'd be like, "See, I told you," and be like, <laughs> "Well, they're not being used exactly as you thought. Some of them kind of are, but a lot of them are not." Some of it's worse, yeah. There's some yeah, of it's worse, but some of it's a lot better. Room, I'm in a room with six screens in it. None of them are televisions. I'm just sitting here thinking I'm in this little, um, what I've set up is kind of a studio. So I've got my laptop here. So I've actually only got one screen, but I have no less than, let's see, three cameras, three videos, um, and at least as many microphones. Oh, no, actually, no, five cameras. <laughs> I just found another pair. Uh, more microphones that I can shake a stick at. I mean, yeah, it's uh, it's pervasive. They're everywhere. Hmm. Oh, and look, there's another screen. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't even notice that one. It yeah. noticed you. I always figured that if somebody's spying on me, damn it, they deserve what they see. <laughs> <laughs> and I hope they have nightmares over it. Exactly. It's what they deserve. Hmm. Interesting. Well, what else so, have we got? <clears throat> well, there's this weird thing that, that uh, Randy brought to my attention. Um, the, the headline is actually a little bit misleading. No. On the internet? Yeah, that seems to be my thing. Um, Microsoft loses control over Windows Tiles subdomain. So what this all boils down to is that when they set up tiles in the Windows Start menu, back in Windows 8 days actually, they set up a specific domain, uh, internet domain, that uh, they would use to uh, actually be where these live tiles would get their information from. Uh, the, subdo- the domain, buildmypinnedsite.com, certainly doesn't sound like a Microsoft site, uh, which in its in and of itself is kind of surprising. I would expect anything that is Microsoft official to have at least an MS in it, if not something else. But um, so, you know, th- that's where this stuff was happening. And as many of us do, they used subdomains for certain things. Now, a subdomain is essentially another piece of name with a period in front of the domain name. So, for example, I have the domain askleo.com. A subdomain is biz.askleo.com. It's a completely different site. It's a completely different URL. It's, it's essentially a completely different domain on the internet, except it's a subdomain of an existing domain. And apparently, uh, what they did is they used a subdomain called notifications.buildmypinnedsite.com to feed these notifications or this information to these Windows Live tiles until they didn't. And the article, like I said, the headline says that a researcher got control over this subdomain. It kind of implies that they got it at the domain level, but that's not how domains work. To go back to my example, in order to have control over the domain, biz.askleo.com, you would have to have control over the entire domain, askleo.com. And that's not what happened in this case. What really happened 
is that, um, and this is where it gets a little bit weird or, or a little bit difficult even for me to understand, is that um, all of this is, not surprisingly, hosted on Microsoft's cloud services, the Azure system. And the, the researcher got control over, apparently, that subdomain's resources on Azure. Not the domain itself, but it's resources. It'd be like hacking into to the Ask Leo server and then wiping out the biz.askleo site and replacing it with your own and doing it in such a way that I couldn't do anything about it. Um, so it's, it's strange. It's it, On one hand, it's kind of, of silly that Microsoft A would have such a weirdly named domain that isn't obviously a Microsoft domain, but B, that they but would let is, something the like... I'm sorry? Check. Oh, but yeah. it is an actual Microsoft domain. Just wanted it to is. throw that in. It is. I, that's the, one of the very first things I did was to see who who's, uh, has it registered. But the, um, uh, the, the weird thing is not even that they would use a subdomain. It's that they would lose control of a, their own service, a piece of their own Internet service, their Azure services. Um, the researcher that's the bigger is, deal. is fortunately... A, um, a good actor. He is planning on, well, he's made, obviously, he's made it known to Microsoft that, hey, such and such is happening, and I took this, and if you want it back, give me a call. I don't know that they've called yet, but they should. Um, they should be very embarrassed by it. They should have in place whatever it takes to hold on to these kinds of things. My, my, my here, I'm, I'm purely speculating at this point. When it comes to domains, there are a couple of things you can do when you decide you're not going to use a domain anymore. Uh, you can keep it, point it to something else. So, for example, if someday I stop doing Ask Leo, I might point askleo.com to something else or biz.askleo.com. Might If you go there, you end up on some other site that I still control. In other words, it was all still in my control. Or... Uh, you could obviously you could sell it to somebody so that you know that this is going to happen, or you could let it expire, right? You could let it lapse. In which case, who knows what happens to it? We all hear stories of people. Anybody can grab it. Anybody can grab it. We've heard stories of previously legitimate domains suddenly turning into porn sites because the domain holder just didn't renew the domain license and off it went. I'm wondering if the same kind of, of scenario is playing out in the Azure backend where somebody essentially lets some kind of resource ownership lapse and the researcher then simply took advantage of that and stepped in. Um, it's an oversight. It's clearly, it should not have happened, especially not for something that apparently is still being used in, in live tiles. But um, it's, it's embarrassing, to say the least, and hopefully something that is a wake-up call to Microsoft to put into some controls where this kind of thing doesn't happen um, either in a more embarrassing way or uh, in a way that uh, would hand off something important to someone who's not quite as nice a guy as this researcher seems to be. And I, I did hear you say you, you're not clear on what really happened. And, and that's why I kicked it over to you because this was a little bit, you know, above me. Right. It seems to me that if buildmypinsite.com is in fact still owned and controlled by Microsoft, 
they have the DNS records. They can choose what happens with that. Absolutely. Yeah, they can do something. So I'm, I'm a little unclear what it is the security researcher actually was able to do. Right. And, and that, you know, that's it's why a big deal because the, the operating system goes and gets the information for these tiles from the server. And if somebody puts some uh, bad code on there, they could literally take over millions of PCs if they were so inclined. Right. And, but that's, you know, like I said, that's why my speculation goes back to this domain, you know, lack of use thing where, you know, I still own biz.askleo.com, but if somebody gets onto my server and replaces the content of that site with malicious content, I think that's the equivalent of what's potentially happening here is that this researcher managed to get into wherever that domain is pointing and did something with what's there. And yes, absolutely. Microsoft did not lose control of the domain. At a minimum, they could take the IP address and point it somewhere else or have it redirect or do something that would render whatever this researcher did um, um, ineffective. Uh, Apparently, they haven't done that yet. And it's unclear why. And, and very surprising. Uh, I use the the online site domaintools.com to find out things like where does this domain go? Right. And it, it notes what the name servers are and it it does list four Microsoft domain servers. Yep. Uh, and what it also notes is how many other domains are by that domain server. And I was a little surprised to see that, you know, Microsoft is obviously a huge company, but they are controlling 18,591 domains. Right. That's a lot of domains to keep track of. Well, uh, so subdomains. To be fair, it's probably not a lot, that many domains to keep track of. A lot of those, I'm certain, are nothing more than uh, protection. They probably mm-hmm. own MicrosoftSucks.com. Things like that. We're yeah. not doing anything with it. And there's probably, you know, a bucket load, thousands of those kind of domains where they're simply proactively owning their own trademark. And if you try to go there, well, you'll just end up at Microsoft.com probably. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Or, or just, you know, you won't get a site at all, uh, which is the other way to deal with it. That's even less maintenance. So. All right. Well, that's all I had on that one. Uh, yeah, no, it was, it was an interesting thing. And it's, you know, there's so many, so many ways to break things that sometimes it's amazing that it works at all, but this was an interesting one. All right. Well, um, to move on, we've been talking about some different rollover scenarios, kind of like Y2K. And we talked about the, uh, the GPS rollover that they had uh, just a week or two ago. Beethoven there's another one rollover. coming. What was that, Kevin? Beethoven. Yeah. All right, roll over, Beethoven, yes. <laughs> so there's another one coming, 768K Day, um, which is, when, speaking of domains and routing tables and all that, there was an internet outage in 2014 because the routing tables went over 512,000 and the routers, you know, the, the, the size of the table that they could handle um, could only handle 512. So when they went over that thing, bad things happened. So one of the things they did was they patched a lot of these routers to handle 768,000 domains. And we're getting awfully close to that. Now this is not just domains. It's actually the routes to, you know, the, uh, the, 
tertiary content addressable, addressable memory, the TCAM. Um, so it, it's kind of like trunk routes, basically. And Verizon has added a whole bunch and has pushed it up to close to the limit. And um, uh, actually, I think that's what happened in, in the 512 one uh, in 2014. But there's another one coming and, you know, there's all these scare headlines and as usual, they're way overblown and thought I'd see what you guys uh, thought about it. I think in two or three episodes, we're going to be going like, it was mostly overblown except for this, you know, the yep. city of Unpatched something. With router at mm-hmm. Except for the <laughs> yeah. water supply. For yeah, this the- is another one of those things that's, that's like Y2K and the GPS rover that's completely avoidable, but it requires that network administrators be on top of it and keep their stuff and keep their stuff and, and, yeah. if, and if you don't a, a couple of the things in the world won't be absolutely to, to be clear this isn't something that affects home routers at all this right. is not something that affects the average consumer or even the small business this is something that is completely in the purview of our internet service providers and in fact perhaps not even them as much as the backbone providers the folks right. that they you know the isps in turn connect to um, folks that are that are uh, routing massive amounts of traffic uh, in ma- in massive number of directions. So chances are, um, you know, they're going to feel it pretty quick. And if something, if there is something, uh, it'll get addressed pretty quick as well. You're right. There might be a oopsie here or there, but uh, I'm not expecting a big problem. Now watch, in a couple of weeks, we won't have an episode because the internet will be down. <laughs> well, speaking of which, we're not going to have an episode next week. So, and, it will, and will it be because of this? Yes. Exactly <laughs> oh, no, it's already happening. <laughs> we're Start just anticipating it. Oh, okay. Yeah, we're, we've, uh, we're, you know, very high-tech gallivanting guys. So Start stockpiling your podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> Fill up your your old iPod with a lot of podcasts so you can survive the internet outage. <laughs> I think that's probably a good place to wrap up. Yeah. Sounds good to me. All right. Well, the show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash teh67. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at the TEH Podcast. And the TEH homepage does have a tweet, a snap of a listener tweet hosted right there. Tell a friend about DEH. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again here probably in two weeks. Hope so. Bye. Bye.